Father, we give thanks to you now, not just because this is Thanksgiving weekend, but because you are worthy of thanksgiving every moment of every day of our lives, because you are good, and you do good, and everything about what you do to us and for us is good. And so teach us, Father, to be thankful And I pray, Father, that this message this morning would help us in that regard and remind us of the joy and responsibility, the duty of thankfulness, but a duty that springs out of delight and satisfaction in you. So be glorified now in this time. And Father, we commit it to your care. And Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and move in our hearts and change us, conform us to the image of of the Son of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, a little bit of a change. We will be talking about Thanksgiving, and in the interest of full disclosure, I need to confess that I have preached this message before. And the reason I'm preaching it again is for two reasons. Number one, I really wanted to have a day off to enjoy with my family on Thanksgiving week, and I wouldn't have been able to do that otherwise. And number two, um, because I don't know about you, but I need to hear a message this not once a year or once every four years, but about once every three months. Uh, I need to be constantly reminded about God's call on my life to be thankful, to be thankful. We need this. You need this. I need this from time to time. It's good for us to think about these things. So let's think about this for a few minutes. Why do we call this holiday Thanksgiving? I mean, why not call it Family Day or Turkey Day or... National Gluttony Day, (laughs) or something like that. Why Thanksgiving? Well, of course, we all know that this is the time of year that we come come together to celebrate what the pilgrims did in the 1600s and how they came to America and the great feasts that they had with the friendly Indians at Plymouth Plantation after the great fall harvest came through for them. But why did that celebration become known as Thanksgiving? I mean, think about it. What in the world did they have to be thankful for? I mean, the reason they were called pilgrims is because they didn't have a a country. They didn't have a land. They really had no home. Yes, they were from England, but they fled England because of the harsh religious persecution that they were experiencing under King James. James was a tyrant. If you weren't part of the Anglican church, you had a target on your back. You remember John Calvin and John Knox produced, and some other uh, faithful scholars produced what was called the Geneva Bible, and it had lots of notes in it. It was uh, the first study Bible, really, ever produced, in the, and certainly in, in the language of the people. And it was that Bible that the pilgrims carried with them when they came to America. Problem was, there were some of the notes in the Old Testament that talked about when it, when it was appropriate to rebel against your king. King James hated that. And so he literally banned the Geneva Bible, and by edict said anyone found with a Geneva Bible was to be burned, and all the Geneva Bibles were to be burned. And so these poor people were persecuted constantly. They were frequently put into prison, not just the men, but the women and children as well. And so they fled from their home country. Where did they go? Well, they didn't come here first. First they, came, they, first they went to Holland. And uh, it was a place where they didn't know the language. They were immigrant workers, even though they were v- very well educated. 
When they got there, they didn't know the language. They were uh, immigrant workers, which means they had to take the menial jobs. They didn't get paid hardly anything. They worked themselves to the bone every day. On top of that, their children were being raised in a secular culture. They were learning uh, the language and forgetting English. And these pilgrims realized they needed to do something about it. When they finally scraped up enough money to purchase a boat for themselves to make it to the new world, they bought not the Mayflower. They didn't own the Mayflower. They rather bought a little boat called the Speedwell, which was terribly misnamed. Because the Speedwell uh, may have originally been designed to be speedy, but it was also very leaky. And when they got into the boat and headed out to sea, they were leaking so badly they couldn't pump it out quick enough uh, as fast as it was coming in. So they had to turn around and go back. They made repairs. They got back in the boat and headed back out to sea, and the leaks kept coming. And so they had to go back and redo the whole plan. And so what they did was they sold the Speedwell, uh, and then they found out that the, the uh, people who made the contract with them didn't, uh, didn't tell them about some of the small prints, so they had additional fees, which meant they had less resources. They had to sell all the butter that they had, which was the, uh, really the foundation of their supply for entering the new world. And then uh, in order to get on the Mayflower, they not only had to pay the fee, but the fee was so much, and the taxes were so much, and they had to sell so much, and there was so little room on the Mayflower that a good portion of their friends and family who were supposed to go with them had to be left behind. I mean, it was awful. The division of families that took place, and yet they did it willingly. And when they finally got out to sea, they got caught in a storm that lasted three weeks. Can you imagine? I mean, being on the ocean, I mean, even though I'm from the coast, New Jersey, right? Even though I'm from up there, the sea is a, is a terrifying thing if you're out there in a storm. And they were in one for three weeks. They couldn't go above deck. It was horrible. They were sick constantly. When they finally arrived in the New World, uh, it was the beginning of a very harsh winter, they were attacked by the Indians. They were berated by the sailors. They nearly starved to death due to lack of supplies. And worst of all, by the end of that first winter, guess what? Half of them were dead. And so I ask, what in the world did they have to be thankful for? I mean, if we had experienced all of that, we would have said, uh, we obviously missed the will of God. We missed the will of God. I mean, look at all this bad stuff. If it were God's will, we wouldn't suffer. That's not what they concluded. And so at the end of it all, they had this great feast, the feast of thanksgiving. And so what was there to be thankful about? There's really only one satisfying answer to this question. You see, while it, were, while it may have seemed strange to the unbeliever to declare a feast of thanksgiving, these pilgrims were no unbelievers. They knew God. They knew Christ. They were true Christians. The kind of Christians most of us only know about through this kind of legendary story of faith and life. How could they have lived through all of that and still be thankful? It was because of this. It was because they understood that thankfulness is more than just an issue of convention and common courtesy. Rather, to the Writers of the Bible, thankfulness, are you ready for this? Thankfulness is a distinguishing mark of a true child of God. 
Thankfulness is a distinguishing mark of a true child of God. Now, that's a bold statement and one that needs to be proven from Scripture. So let's do that. Three points this morning. Number one, thankfulness magnifies the glory of God. How do we know that thankfulness is such a big deal? How do we know that it's a distinguishing characteristic of a true child of God? Number one, thankfulness magnifies the glory of God. And so the first major clue that this kind, uh, that, that this is true, that the first major distinctive or a major distinctive of a true child of God is that they're thankful. Um, the first major clue that, that kind of jolted me onto this trail of the importance of thankfulness in the heart in the life of a believer came to me a few years ago just before Thanksgiving when I was reading the scriptures and I came on Romans chapter 1. So turn with me, with me there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, just before 1 Corinthians, if you need a little help there, and chapter 1. Now, you know all about chapter 1. Chapter 1's not very encouraging. It talks all about, uh, um, at least a major section of it talks about how God is pouring out his wrath on mankind. In Romans chapter 1, if you're there with me, let's look at verse 21 and see if it if it startles you the way it startled me in terms of its connection to thankfulness. Now, first of all, notice in verse 18. In verse 18, it's all about the wrath of God that is being poured out upon unbelievers who, watch this, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, or they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so they suppress the truth. We've talked about this before. The idea of suppressing is like leaning on something, like, like something that's flexible, like a spring. It's constantly trying to push up, but you're suppressing it. You're pushing it down. You're pushing it down. And that's what the unbeliever does relative to the truth. Now, what truth are we talking about? Look at verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God, that's the issue, the knowledge of God, for what can be known about God or what is known about God is plain to them because it is revealed through what is seen. God has revealed it through what he's created. For his invisible attributes, verse 20, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that, watch this, they are without excuse. What do you mean they have no excuse? Here's what he means. There is no excuse for not believing there is a God. You have no excuse. Everything in the universe, everything in the cosmos, everything around you screams that there is a God. God designed it that way. I mean, you can't look at the fall colors that are happening in Texas of all places right now and, and not conclude there's a God. I mean, there is design everywhere you look. There is design from, from the planetary bodies and the solar systems and, and, the, uh, 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 and the galaxies, even down to single-celled creatures and below that into the atomic order of things. How can you know any of that and not conclude there is a God? There's only one way. You have to suppress the truth. In unrighteousness, you have to suppress it. So why is God pouring out his wrath? Verse 21, 
For though they, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or, what? Give thanks. They did not honor him as God or give thanks. Now, the startling thing about this verse is when Paul makes it clear that this is important. One of the, everybody, every, every eye up here for just a second. A distinguishing mark of an unbeliever, Paul saying, is that they will not give thanks. Isn't that interesting? A distinguishing mark of an unbeliever is that he does not give thanks to God. Why? Because he suppresses the truth about God. He doesn't want to believe in God. If there's a God, we're accountable. That's, that's the whole point. If there is a God, we're accountable. Why does man go to such great lengths to suppress the truth? Why do we spend billions of dollars to send unmanned spacecraft to Mars? One purpose, to suppress the truth and to deny that there is a God. And yet everything in creation declares that there is. And notice the connection with the glory of God in verse 23 and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for images in the form of corruptible man and birds and animals and creeping things. What's he saying? We would rather have dumb idols than a glorious God. You know why? Because our dumb idols will never hold us accountable. They give us what we want. They make us feel good about ourselves. They give us a license to pursue all of the desires of the flesh. And so we realize we have to worship. We were hardwired to worship. But we're devoted, the unbeliever is devoted to worshiping anything and everything but God. And so the unbeliever is characterized as one who does not give thanks to God because he suppresses the truth about God and exchanges the the incorruptible glory of God for the things that have no value. Because the things that have no value make no judgments about your person. So why is the wrath of God being poured out on unbelievers? Because they don't give thanks to God. They don't give him the thanks that he is due. And by withholding thanks, what they're really doing is denying the glory of God And such is the case with every person who will spend eternity in hell. And just as an aside, it's not just those people. It's also, at a different level, it's also me and it's also you. Every time we fail to be thankful, every time in, in, in whatever circumstance we're in, we choose to grumble and complain like Israel did in the Old Testament, rather than be thankful, rather than give thanks to God, we are exercising unbelief. It's unbelief. At its root, it's unbelief. John Piper writes this. I think this is, this is helpful. He says in his book, Desiring God, when every human being stands before God on the day of judgment, God will not have to use one sentence of Scripture to show us our guilt and the appropriateness of our condemnation. He will need only to ask three questions. Number one, was it not plain in nature that everything you had was a gift and that you were dependent on your maker for life and breath and everything? Number two, 
Did not the judicial sentiment in your own heart always hold other people guilty when they lacked the gratitude that they should have had in response to a kindness that you performed for them? And number three, has your life been filled with gratitude and trust toward me in proportion to my generosity and authority? Case closed. We know there is a God. Mankind knows there's a God. Unbelievers know that there is a God. But they refuse to acknowledge him as God or give thanks. Because giving thanks, you can't give thanks to God without acknowledging that he is. And so you see, unthankfulness is the putrid fruit of an unbelieving heart. It is the putrid fruit of an unbelieving heart. Thankfulness, however, even though it's not listed in Galatians chapter 5, thankfulness is one of the sweet fruits of the Spirit. It's one of the sweet fruits of the Spirit. It is a God-wrought joy in what God has given and ordained even when circumstances are extremely difficult, like the pilgrims. Like Job, who delighted in the Lord, even to say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, the unbeliever is unthankful because he denies the glory of God. But listen to how the Bible connects thanksgiving with the glory of God in the life of a believer. Just a few scriptures here, and I won't give them all to you, but If you're taking notes, here's a few references. Psalm 50, verse 23. Um, The psalmist says, He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me, God says. David writes, Psalm 69, verse 30. I will praise the name of God with song and magnify him with thanksgiving. Psalm 95, 1 through 3. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with what? With thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with the songs, for the, with the Psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Why are we giving thanks? Because we recognize the glory of God. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4.15, For all things are for your sake, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the, watch this, may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. This is all about the glory of God. Thanksgiving is not about how you really feel. Thanksgiving is about you disciplining yourself to give glory to God. Hebrews 13, 15, through him then, let us continually, continually, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. You say, well, what is that? That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Revelation 7, 11, and 12 says this, and the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their face before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, and blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God 
forever and forever. You know who was saying that? The angels. The angels. And they weren't even recipients of the gospel. I mean, they hadn't had their sins forgiven. They weren't, they didn't know anything about sin. And yet they gave thanks to God. How much more should we? And so why is thanksgiving a distinguishing mark of a true believer? Well, because thankfulness to God always points to or always magnifies the glory of God. So the reason the pilgrims could express such legendary thankfulness after all their suffering was because their affections were fixed, not on their own temporal comforts, but on the greatness of the glory of God. And you know what? If you were daily, if you were daily reigning in your soul, reminding yourself that God is worthy to be praised, no matter what your circumstances, you'll give thanks. You'll give thanks. This is so crucial for us. The unbeliever always turns away from the glory of God. He hates the glory of God. But the true child of God has a heart that has been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit so that there is nothing he loves to do more than honor and praise and boast in and rejoice over the incomparable glory of God. And that's what Thanksgiving is all about. I don't mean the holiday. I mean the attitude of the heart. I mean the expression of the lips. Thanks be to God. And we should be characterized by this. Our words to one another should be characterized by this. Somebody compliments you? Tell them thank you. Yes. But give praise to God. Praise God. Give thanks to God. Thanks be to God. There's so many biblical ways to say this. Isn't the Lord good? Whatever is appropriate for the minute, for the circumstance. You know what? That's what believers do. We worship God, not our circumstances. When we worship our circumstances, they'll kill us because they never satisfy. They make a bad God, a tyrant. And by the way, that's why we're commanded to be thankful. This isn't just God saying, well, I wish you would. I hope you would. Won't you please be thankful? Mm -mm. It is a command let me just give you a few instances. First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Now, I know you know this text. We read it earlier today. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in how many things? Everything's or all things, King James. In all things, what? Give thanks for, why? For this is the will of God concerning you. You looking for God's will? Trying to discern God's will for your life? Start here. Be thankful for what you have. Thankful for who you are. Thankful for where you are. Thankful for the pace pace that you're moving. Thankful even for the the cloudiness and the confusion about what you ought to do next. It's all ordained by God. If you're walking behind the good shepherd, this is the right path. It's the path of righteousness, Psalm 23. It's the right path. Even if it's through the valley of the shadow of death, it's the right path. Give thanks. Give thanks. Colossians 4.2. Again, it's an imperative here. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it, in what? 
in prayer, right? So we're talking about prayer here. We're being commanded to pray. What kind of prayers? Keep alert in it with an attitude of what? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, Colossians 3.15. And let the peace of Christ rule your heart to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. I mean, there's the wedding of two essentials in the Christian life. That the peace of God would rule your heart to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. Why is it, why is it, what's the connection between peace of God and thankfulness? If you're not thankful, you won't have any peace. Because a lack of thankfulness demonstrates that your heart is trying to suck nourishment and water out of a broken cistern that you've made for yourself rather than getting the refreshing, enlivening, invigorating water of life that comes from the spring of life who is God himself. It's just another way God says that it's an idol. You're worshiping idols rather than him. The glory, honor, and praise of God is the most precious and important thing in the believer's life. If you are not a worshiper, a joyful worshiper of God, then something is wrong, and you're probably experiencing the effects of it. You say, my relationship with the Lord is just kind of blah. Get over it. Worship. Do what David did to his own soul. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Put your hope in God. And he'll say elsewhere, be thankful, be thankful, be thankful. Be thankful. So regardless of your circumstance, be thankful. But don't misunderstand here. We we give thanks to God as believers, not just because we're commanded to. This This isn't legalism. No, the believer's thankfulness naturally flows out of a, 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 a... a contented heart. So imagine, imagine contentment is, is a bucket of water. I'm going to change the illustration here in a little bit, but just for the sake of, of keeping it narrow. Let's, cons- let's say it's a bucket of water, um, contentment. And inside of a bucket, there's a hose that's turned on. Water's coming out of the hose, into the bucket. The water in the bucket is contentment. The overflow is thanksgiving. You don't get any thanksgiving unless there is contentment. Does it make sense? So thankfulness, this is number two, if you're taking notes, thankfulness is the overflow of contentment. It flows out of a heart that is content in who God is and what he has provided, what he has done. How is it that the pilgrims could give thanks to God after so many tragedies, after so much suffering? The answer is that as Christians, they were motivated not just by the external command, but by a deep sense of contentment in all that God was for them in the midst of their suffering. Listen, you can't put this on. You could probably put something on like it. I suppose. But in this kind of suffering, if you don't have it in your heart, it's not coming out. You know, take the bottle illustration again. You pop the cap off, shake the bottle. 
Whatever comes out, that's what was inside. If thankfulness comes out, there has to be contentment in there. Some level of contentment. And the pilgrims recognized the fact that God, who owed them nothing, no, 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 who owed them hell, had given them every good and perfect gift. He was their sustainer. They knew that. He was their strength. He was their redeemer and deliverer. More than that, he was their salvation. He was, he was their sanctification. He was the one who would give meaning to their existence and purpose to their suffering. And he, he had also promised that someday those sufferings would end and the sufferings of this present life would be shown to be incomparably small next to the weight of glory that would be revealed to them in heaven. Remember when my grandfather died? He was the godliest man I ever knew. He died when I was 12 or 13. And uh, died of a stroke. Oh, a long, hard death. But he died well. And I always thought, Lord, why? why? Why did you let him suffer so much? He was such a godly man. And I come across scriptures like this and I think... <laughs> God was being gracious to him. He was storing up for him a greater and greater and greater weight of glory. And this is why, by the way, Martin Luther, after all of his suffering, I mean, the world was against him. How would you like to be the only human being in the world who stands up and says, everybody in the world is wrong? And he was right. I mean, it wasn't. Everybody. God always has his elect, his remnant. I mean, but the Roman Catholic Church had drifted so far, and they were the only thing going. For Martin Luther to stand against that, he suffered. He suffered. And yet he could write in his timeless song, A Mighty Fortress, let goods, what, what are goods? Money, possessions. Let goods and kindred, what's kindred? Family. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom reigns forever. That's what his hope was in. God's forever eternal kingdom. And by the way, that was the whole point of Hebrews chapter 11, where you got all those heroes of the faith who are mentioned. You've got, you know, Enoch and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and, and then that list of unnamed people who received back from the dead and some of them were sawn in two. And, and, then, and then the author of Hebrews says, none of them received the promise. You know what that means? None of them experienced the fulfillment of God's ultimate promises in this life. But the reason they made the hard decisions in this life is that all of their hope was in those promises. They had a future orientation that looked toward the eternal and said, that's what I'm living for. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, who cares? God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That's what they live for. That's why Moses would refuse to become the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
He chose rather, he believed that there was greater riches in following Christ. And so he gave up everything to be with the people of God. He gave up a lot. I mean, he, he was in line to be, you know, prime minister, maybe Pharaoh. Why? Because his future orientation was in the promises of God for eternity. I don't know about you, but I've tried to make it a practice ever since we studied that in Hebrews, you know, about God's promises of future grace and about the resurrection. We looked at this at the end of 1 Corinthians 2, the resurrection. I don't know about you, but on the day of the resurrection, I want to look back and say, I did everything God wanted me to do. I realize I won't really be able to say that, but that's my attitude. That's the attitude I strive for every day in the resurrection. I want to look back and say, no regrets. No regrets about this next moment, sitting in front of the computer, or at home with my family, or on the job, or preaching one Sunday, or not preaching, or not, whatever it is, whatever the next decision is, I want to have this future orientation. You realize eschatology is not so that we can have charts to argue about. It's about us having this hope for the future that that guides our decision-making now. I'm so far away from my notes, I don't know where I am. Okay. (laughs) Turn with me to to Philippians chapter 4. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Philippians chapter 4. I want you to see the connection between thankfulness and contentment. The connection between thankfulness and contentment. What what I've proposed here is that thankfulness is the overflow of contentment. Look at verse 6, where Paul writes these familiar words. Do not be anxious about how many things? About anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, we might think, um, what makes you thankful? We might ask Paul, what makes you thankful when others are experiencing anxiety? Verse 7 says that the peace of God Christ, or the peace of God, will guard your hearts. It will guard your hearts. But where does that peace come from? Where does the peace of God come from? I think we get a glimpse of the answer to this question down in in verse 11, where Paul reveals something significant the Lord has taught him. Watch this. Namely, he says that I have learned to be, here it is, content in whatever circumstances I am. That's amazing. I'll keep reading. I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. In every and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do, how many things? All things through him, through Christ, who strengthens me. Now, now talk about a, a verse that is so sorely abused and lifted from its context. 
I mean, people claim this verse for everything. I can, I can advance in my career because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, I can, I can, I can fix, my, I can fix the, the leak in my plumbing because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The donut man, you remember him? Uh, that, that children's music guy uh, who had a song on this and he would, he would interject, ride my skateboard, all things, you know, love my sister, all things. Listen, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about in the midst of your suffering, and maybe that is you love your sister, I don't know. In the midst of your suffering or in your pros- prospering, your prosperity, can you give thanks? And by the way, Paul knew both, and that's what he says here. Uh, we like to think, most of all, we think of Paul, we think suffering. We think of the, the uh, beatings, the left for dead, the imprisonment, the crowds, the mobs that hated him. And we think of him being shipwrecked and left a night and a day in the deep more than once. But you know, Paul, Paul also had very wealthy friends. Think of Lydia and Phoebe and Philemon, just to name three. These, pe- these were people of means who greatly supported Paul's ministry. And when he was with them, guess what? Abundance! And when he was with Luke and Timothy, sometimes in Athens or wherever he was, sometimes it was suffering need. In Corinth, big time suffering need. And he said, you know what? (laughs) In all those circumstances, none of that swayed my worship. None of it swayed my contentment. When I had a lot, I didn't think, I wish I had more. And when I... When I didn't have anything, I didn't think, God, what, what, what's wrong with you? No, in all things, in all things, I've learned to be content. You want to know why so many of us are not more thankful people? Let me suggest that it's because we are such discontented people. We look at our circumstances, present, past, even the prospects of the future, and we curse God. Never satisfied with what God has given. Always learning, longing for the thrill of a new toy or a new experience, a new relationship, or upset about broken toys and broken relationships, and no toy ever lasts very long without breaking. The new experience always becomes passe, no matter what it is. The new relationship never fully satisfies and we are left in a state of perpetual discontent. Show me a person who is perpetually discontent and I'll show a person who has no peace and is not thankful. C.S. Lewis once wrote these words. I love this quote from Lewis. Lewis got some things wrong, but there's so many things he got right. He said, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. That's a future orientation. We're made for this. Living in a sinful world with sinful people having a sinful heart. You see, the pilgrims knew this. 
They knew this. They knew the Word of God better than we do, probably because they didn't have internet or cable TV. They had a few books, mostly the Bible. And the reason they could be so thankful was because they were so content. And the reason they were content was because as Christians, the things they loved most were the things that they could only get from God. The things that were most precious to them were only the things that they could only get from God. They learned to say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ, and to die, future orientation, is gain. When you when you come to the realization that dying is gain, you will live a different way. You will make different choices. Because you'll be, you'll be filtering everything you do through the prospects of the resurrection rather than for the potential for pleasure. The pilgrims saw that death of their loved ones, not so much a loss for themselves, but gain for the ones they lost. They saw the trials of this life as God's grace working perseverance in their souls. They saw the storm at sea as the two arms of God, one that is terrible in power, the other mighty to save. And like believers in ages past, the pilgrims could be thankful after so much hardship because they were content in the midst of their hardship. In the middle of it all, they had a contented heart. And so, number one, thankfulness magnifies the glory of God. That's why it's a distinguishing mark of a true believer. Number two, thankfulness is the overflow of contentment. And where does contentment come from? Number three, contentment wells up from the spring of faith. Let's change the illustration a little bit. Imagine in your mind, not a bucket, but a geyser, right? And you ever been to Old Faithful? You seen Old Faithful? I did when I was seven. Every hour, poof, the thing blows, blasts water into the sky. And it's, it's an amazing thing to see. And it's, it's perfectly timed. Every, every hour, boom, there it goes. It blasts water into the sky. So here's this pool. But it isn't a it isn't a man-made pool. It doesn't have a hose in it. It is a spring that goes down deep into the earth, and the water that's in it keeps coming up and keeps coming up and keeps coming up. What is that spring? Well, we learn about this spring in Hebrews 13. So let's just keep turning to the right here. Let's go to the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 3. This verse is just of one of many that we could look at at kind of to, to make this point. And so notice with me, Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. Make sure your character is free from the love of money. Why? Because you will be discontent and unthankful if you love money. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being what? Content with what you have. For, here's why, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. By the way, that's, that's a promise. 
so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? There's anxiety again. These guys keep bringing all these, the same things back together. Now, upon what basis does the author say that we should be content? Answer, for he himself has said, and what has God said? I will never desert you. I will never forsake you. It's the same thing that he's always promised. Remember Joshua chapter 1? He's telling Joshua, cross the Jordan, go into the promised land, conquer. Really, Jericho? Jericho is the indestructible city. Nobody can conquer Jericho. Trust me. Trust me. I wouldn't tell you to do something that you can't do by my grace. And this is the way God says it. Have not I commanded you to be strong and of good courage? Do not be dismayed. And do not fear. For the Lord your God is what? With you wherever you go. I mean, we see this promise over and over again. Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, David says, for what? You are with me. You see, if God is with you, and that's a promise that must be believed, if God is with you, then every circumstance around you is ordained and carefully measured for your good. Therefore, you can be content, not in the circumstance, but in him. In him. And so, in other words, our contentment is contingent upon whether or not we will live believing that God will make good on his promise. And so what are we saying? We're saying this. The spring of contentment is, is faith. It's faith. You remember 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and 10, how God responded to Paul after the messenger of Satan kept, kept coming and, and Harassing Paul, we don't know what the messenger of Satan was, but three times Paul asked the Lord to remove it. And three times the Lord's response was what? My grace is sufficient for you. Answer, no. <laughs> you are going to walk through the valley with me. Lord, I don't want to. I'm not asking you if you want to. I'm telling you, Trust me, trust me. And if you trust me, you will have reason to be content because I will provide for you. I will be for you everything you need through that valley. And you will be content to such a degree that when someone asks you how you are doing, you'll give thanks. You'll give thanks. It's a promise. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. It's a promise. It's another promise. And Paul could either believe that or write it off. But he didn't write it off. In verse 10, he writes this, Therefore, since God has said that to me, God has explained this to me, he's not going to remove the suffering. Therefore, I am well content. 
You see the connection between faith and contentment? I believe what God has said. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I'm strong. I think the list here is important because weaknesses, you can't blame that on anybody else. Okay, I can, I can be content. I got this weakness, okay? Um, difficulties, okay, you know, I don't, I don't have enough money for the bills, but I really, you know, it's not personal. I can't blame that on anybody. Um, bounced a check, ah, oh, that was my fault. We're so forgiving of ourselves. Um, no big, but notice the other things. Weaknesses, yeah, insults. You know what? That's personal. That's people in your life saying things to you, about you, that hurts. Distress, could be anything. Persecutions, that's personal. And for Paul, it just wasn't a messenger of Satan. It was sometimes mobs of people. That hurts. Difficulties, could be anything. But he was well content with weakness for Christ's sake. He saw everything for Christ's sake. In other words, this is my way of glorifying Christ. I'll be content in my weakness, in my persecutions, in my insults, in my distresses, in my difficulties. I will be content for Christ's sake. Why? For when I'm weak, I'm strong. I'm strong. What was the source of Paul's contentment? It's faith. Faith is the spring. Contentment is the pool. Thankfulness is the overflow. And so if there's a lack of thankfulness, there's probably a lack of true contentment. And if there's a lack of contentment, then there's probably unbelief. The lack of faith. And that's it, isn't it? Thankfulness is the overflow of contentment. Contentment wells up from the spring of faith. And so do you see why thankfulness is such an integral part to the Christian life? It's a distinguishing mark of a true believer. Why? Because it's written in the very fabric of our spiritual DNA. Because the just shall live by faith. I mean, it is the very foundation of all that we are. We are people of faith in Christ for everything we need. If we were to live by faith in God, in the God who promised to never leave us and always provide for us, if we live in faith in him, then we will experience contentment. We will experience contentment. And by the way, this is why I sign, I sign my, whenever I send someone an email, almost invariably I sign it, satisfied in Christ. And there's two reasons for that. One is um, I want to communicate something to other people. But the second thing is every time I write that, I have to ask myself, Really? Really? Are you really satisfied in Christ right now? It's a call to repentance when I'm not. 
It's a call to worship when I am. So if you understand this, if this all resonates with you, then the story of the pilgrims makes perfect sense. Their thankfulness to God did not depend on their circumstances, either present circumstances, watch this, past circumstances, or even perceived future circumstances didn't depend on any of that. But on God who is faithful. On God who is faithful. They chose to put their faith in God that he would be for them everything that he had promised to be for them and to do for them everything that, that we would ever need both in this life and in the life to come through Jesus Christ. And so how did it work? You look at the pilgrims. You put the x-ray machine up, here's what you're going to find. Why in the world are you people being so thankful? Put the x-ray machine of the word of God up and you go, okay. They trusted God for his promises. That faith produced in them a contentment that sometimes is marked by the peace that passes all understanding, which guards their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. And when you talk with them, thankfulness, thankfulness. So here they are sitting around a Plymouth plantation. The crops are rolling in, and one of them says, hey, oh, what should we do? What should we do? And somebody says, I got an idea. Maybe it was Bradford. I got an idea. Let's have a week of thankfulness. Let's just celebrate. Let's invite our neighbors and and hope they bring some food. The deer and the turkey and all the stuff that they brought. Let's give thanks to God. And maybe in the process, some of them will come to know the God that we know. When they see us, they've seen us starve, they've seen us die, and now they see us rejoicing. Maybe in their minds they thought, let your light so shine before men that they may may see your good works and glorify your God. Where did those good works come from? A heart of contentment that was rooted in a choice to believe the God who is promised. Faith, contentment, Thanksgiving. Faith, contentment, thanksgiving. Faith, contentment, thanksgiving. You thankful person? Are you thankful today? For what? Everything. Everything. Paul said both in everything and for everything. Because our God is good. Let's pray. Lord, you are good to your people. You are even good to the unbelieving world. Your common grace is poured out upon all men. You call it, cause it to rain upon the evil and the good. But you have been especially good to your children. And every day we get the, the privilege of fellowshipping with you. We get the privilege of fellowshipping with one another as joyful worshipers of you. And so every green tree, every shining star, every every blade of grass and cloud in the sky, every difficulty, every blessing, abundance, and need, all of it calls us, us to worship you. And so, Father, we worship you. We praise you. We believe you. Help, Lord, 
our unbelief and make us joyful worshipers who are content in Christ and who are eager to give thanks to you for all things and in all things. For we pray it in Jesus' name.